Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, should we defund the Hamilton Police Service by 50% in order to provide free permanent housing? How can small business compete with a big box store when it's allowed to stay open during a pandemic? And there's a rally today in Vancouver to free the Huawei CFO that is being held while the two Michaels suffer in isolation in China. Are we becoming more sympathetic to the Communist Party of China? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Scott's son. I made her first snowman of the season this weekend. He had a vest made of unraked leaves and I had a dog poo. Remember kids, a good snowman requires better backyard lawn maintenance before rolling that giant snowball. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! And it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Go to that snowman if I were you. I stay away from that guy. Uh, nothing frosty about that fella. All right, demonstrators camping out in front of uh, Hamilton City Hall, calling on the city to defund police and reallocate those funds toward housing. Advocates with a group called the Defund the Police Hamilton Coalition set up speakers and tents in the forecourt on Monday afternoon and started a series of speeches and asking for demands, including uh, Hamilton Police Service to immediately reduce their budget by 50% and as well allocate the surplus uh, to free permanent housing. Here's, uh, and uh, as well, these uh, protests have continued to to go, obviously, during a COVID-19 uh, pandemic, which adds and complicates the issue even more. Here's what Deputy Police Chief Bergen had to say about uh, the gathering. We spoke to the uh, six organizers who had been identified in this event, and we had let them know uh, that, in fact, since being in Code Red, uh, that we would be adhering to the expectations of the province um, and enforcing the Reopening Ontario's Act. And specifically, that was the trigger of not having more than 25 people um, collect, uh, including social distancing and masks, uh, in a public gathering. And our mission statements and operational plans is to ensure that people have the ability to have a respectful gathering, that everyone has the ability of safety and preserving their rights uh, as, as deemed in the Charter. So we're fully aware of that, but, but we also have to adhere to certainly what is in the middle of this public health crisis. Uh, Deputy Police Chief Bergen talking about City Hall. We also reached out to the mayor. Uh, he is not available, but released uh, this statement. I respect the right for citizens to peacefully protest and ensure their voices are heard on municipal matters. City staff are ensuring all demonstrators are respecting public property and keeping their gathering to under 25 as per COVID-19 pandemic protocols with the current provincial health orders. All right, to talk more about all of this, one of the organizers of the Defund Hamilton Police Service currently on site, uh, Roa is with us now. Roa, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, we are. We're doing well out here. All right, so describe the situation. Tell us what it's like down there. Um, It's actually really upbeat and great right now. We just did a body movement class talking about defunding. It's been a lively and great conversation. We've also been able to bring some really good resources that the city has neglected down to people here on the ground who are in house. So it's, it's been really great. 
So uh, obviously uh, complicated by a pandemic. How does that all fit into this? And how have you been able to uh, to keep the social distancing and, and make sure that uh, that protocols are practiced? Um, of course, we're also very, very concerned about COVID. Um, our people are, of course, not only worrying about uh, COVID, but they're also worried about the housing crisis and racism, which are their own inde- like own problems um, that you know that we are struggling with anyways and so it's just an additional thing so we're uh, taking measures to do that i personally took temperatures this morning we're asking people all the screening questions um people are not intense um of five people or more there's far less than that and only people um are saying people are only staying with their bubbles right so a lot of right. unhoused people already have their community bubbles that they form so just um allowing people to have the space to you know use tents and all of that and so spaced out and socially distanced. There's a lot of a lot of space on that public property out there. So uh, you're right outside the forecourt of City Hall, correct? So like, there's enough room there for everybody. Yes, um, there's plenty of room, and uh, if we need to expand, we can you know continue to uh, distance those tents six feet apart as we were, and and just expand if we need to. There's a lot of people who need to be housed, and I think we're going to see a lot more people come out looking for resources, looking to stay warm. Um, it's, it's, it's hard. I, I wish more people could experience this so that they would know what it's like to sleep outside overnight and what that looks like for people and what that feels like and, and how many people don't make it through the winter because of that and die. People have died at Moss Park. Someone died last year in London, Ontario um, um, in a dumpster because they had no other shelter. Um, this is a huge problem right across Ontario and across the country. And we, just, we really need a multi-level government response to this it's it's unacceptable that we live in canada and that people are unhoused and that the police are doing the dirty work of taking down people's encampments and making sure continue to be people continue to be unhoused and harass them it's it's really key that we defund the police and redirect those funds to housing so roa we seem to have two issues here and are you worried that those will get uh confused or lose one for the other is this about housing or is this about defunding the police so none of these issues are disconnected, right? So our yeah. police budget in Hamilton um, is overinflated. They have a surplus, but they're still in, um, asking for a... Their surplus is over $500,000, and they're still asking for a $4 million increase. Um, they use those funds to harass unhoused people, to displace them further, and to move them where they obviously have nowhere else to go. So that becomes an issue, and it's like, instead of using the police, paying them to harass unhoused people... We could use those funds to have everyone be housed because housing is a human right. And then, you know, we wouldn't need police to be harassing people, not that we needed them to in the first place. Uh, Are there not enough shelter beds in Hamilton uh, today? No, there are not enough shelter beds. I know there's a lot of misinformation about that, but shelters are full. That's one thing. And the shelter system is not safe or secure for a lot of people. People have had horrible experiences with the shelter system. No efforts have been made to fix the shelter system. And additionally, during COVID times, people are concerned about being in a closed space with a bunch of people they don't know, not the communities they've already formed outside, um, and then be in the space where they're not going to be taken care of in terms of COVID measures. Like having that many people in one space is not COVID safe. Uh, are you concerned that if uh, the same situation arises with shelters, that the same insecurity might not be there? Uh, in in that free housing, that you're going to have the same issues uh, in that free housing that you have in those public shelters? Um, so if people have free housing, they can socially isolate 
on their own with their own family units, as opposed to um, with hundreds of other people that they don't know and don't know what their bubbles are, their social distancing, you know, how they, how they do that, right? So I don't think those same issues will arise. And it's really important to, yes, get free housing, but get wraparound services for people. Um, that means um, services for mental health and addiction and making sure that, yes, all those things are taken care of, but that housing is the first step. Housing is a core basic human need. On your hierarchy of needs, food, water, housing are the main things. You cannot function or do anything else if you don't have those basic things. And I think it's unfair to expect people to, you know, to manage to function while they they can't find a place to live or they're cold. How has COVID-19 complicated this? Um, Complicated the housing crisis? The housing issue, yeah. Yes, for sure. So the... um, it's complicated, the housing issue, because a lot of people are currently being evicted. Um, a lot of people are struggling with trying to um, find food and resources. Um, a lot of unhoused people, because we've been working with people all summer, um, a lot of unhoused people have not had anywhere to go to the bathroom. Some public places have closed. The city has shut down the bathroom. There is no place for people to go to the bathroom. And so COVID made it worse. I do remember a day in the summer I was out there, and a man was telling me that... <laughs> He went literally everywhere to try and get some, some water, a drink of water, and there was not a single public space open for him to drink, get a, just a drink of water. And um, he, 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 um, he, he, wouldn't, like, he couldn't get free water. He couldn't purchase water. And it's, it's really problematic that people don't have the most basic of needs, like water and being able to go to the bathroom and a house to feel safe in. Um, uh, many people, as soon as you say defund the police by 50%, will say that's one of those goals that cannot be done overnight. That's something, you, you know, and to play devil's advocate here, many people are asking the police to do more in the sense that, well, they should have training for mental services. They should have training uh, for cybersecurity. They should have training for uh, terrorism and, and all of this other stuff. Uh, yet now we're talking, you know, and they should be doing more. Now all of a sudden uh, it's defunding the police police and doing the opposite are we asking them to do more and now asking to defund you know it seems like on one hand we're asking for more yet on the other hand we're we're, we we don't want them to do that so again it wasn't that long ago and i would say just prior to the whole george floyd incident where people were saying they're not trained enough they need to have this they need to have that they need and now all of a sudden we're realizing we're asking them to do too much and and you can't ask them to do more and then defund so how do you balance that so i i would like to know who these people are who are asking the police to do more because that's really problematic the police have proven themselves to be a violent institution over time and so therefore we should not have them do more i'm not finished one sec um so the rest of it is that um the police are also not capable of fulfilling all of these things they should not be doing that there are mental health professionals there are actual nurses there are people who do real useful jobs that are not terrorizing the community um, that can take on those jobs. We don't need the police to be doing those things. We don't need the police in schools to be talking to our children um, about bullying and sexual assault. There are actual educational professionals who can do that. And that's what we're asking for, is defunding the police who are not equipped to do those things and funding institutions that are, funding organizations locally that are, institutions that deal with homelessness, that deal with food insecurity, that deal um, with sexual assault. There's a lot there that the police cannot and should not be in charge of um and we need to just defund and move those funds over to where it's more appropriately used 
it just makes sense on a human rights level, it makes sense financially, and it makes sense for the purposes of efficiency and actually getting people the correct help that they need. I remember uh, about a year or two ago, there was a, a program introduced with the Hamilton Police Service where they were taking a uh, someone who has uh, expertise in mental health services went on them on certain calls when they needed this sort of help. Is that sort of the thing that's not needed, or that is um, needed? As a person who's experienced um, issues with mental health, I can tell you right now that having a police officer present is not helpful. Police officers are scary. They are the same people who are violently oppressing people every day. And so to see them when you are in mental health crisis is not helpful and it's not useful to the person. Um, the only reason the police are there is because they have a weapon, right? Um, they don't so what happens when it turns violent? What, what, mental- what happens when it turns violent, though? What happens when things turn violent? We have ways of de-escalating. There are methods of de-escalating. People have training in de-escalation, except for the police, apparently, who always escalate things, right? So or whether, they're not, whether they have that training and aren't using it or whether they don't have it, they are not the appropriate people to be responding to people in mental health crisis. There can be teams set up to do that that are not the police, that are not armed. There is no reason to approach anyone in mental health crisis with a gun or a taser or any form of weapon. And it's even worse to have that be publicly funded. We do not pay taxes so that the police can oppress us. We do not pay their bills so that they can harm us. What if that person has a knife or a gun themselves and is is trying to harm themselves or other people? Yep. If someone has a knife or a gun and the police cannot de-escalate that without using a weapon then they are not in charge of public safety. They should not be in charge of public safety. No, but would that, would a, who, would, who would disarm them if the, the person who's in distress has a weapon of some sort? Do you call police or do you let the social counselors to, uh, deal with that? There are ways of de-escalating things and having trained people on site to de-escalate things. If the police, as you're saying, are not capable of de-escalating a violent situation without pulling out... I didn't say the police were... I didn't say the police were incapable of... I did not say the police were incapable of de-escalating a violent situation. I'm talking about before the police even get there. You're saying, uh, you know, have other people that are more qualified to do that. And that makes great sense. But what happens if that person who is in distress is now in the process with a weapon or what have you and could harm themselves? or others then what do you do do you call police no you do not call the police the police have historically and regularly showed up to people in mental health crisis and they end up dead i'll remind you of regis paquette i will remind you of andrew loku and Abdurrahman abdi and countless other people who have called the police because they were in distress and needed mental health support and then they ended up dead right and that happens to countless people it happens to people of color more often it happens to queer people more often. We have seen the police actually actively stand by and do nothing while people are were threatened by white supremacists and Nazis at Pride last year. The police do not exist to protect us. We protect ourselves. Our communities protect us. And it's time that, you know, the Hamilton City Council and HPS listened to the actual citizens who are paying the bill, who are footing the bill for this violence at this point in time, and defunded and redirected those funds to where we could use them and where we need them as a community. Roa, if we want to find out more, where can we go? Is there a website we can follow? Yes, you can go to defundhps.com and check us out on Twitter at defundhps. Roa, thanks for the time. Good luck.
Thank you. All right, let's bring in uh, Christian Leprac. Christian Leprac is professor of the Royal Military College at Queen's University. Christian, uh, more calls for defunding the police by 50%, taking the money, putting it into social services, and not asking the police to do this job. Is, is that possible? Can we do that? Is that? Can we change the system? Look, we live in a democracy, and ultimately it's up to the people to decide. It is city council that votes on the budget. And it's, of course, the Police Services Board that is the key intermediary. And so that's the first thing that I would suggest uh, to your previous guest, uh, that they should be making a deposition to the Police Services Board, because once the budget comes to city council, it tends to be more an up or down vote on the budget. Whereas if you really want to influence the budget and you want to get a detailed look at the budget, uh, then that would be the place to make the proper deposition. Um, And also to be able to have an engagement at that opportunity with the chief and with the chair who in Hamilton case also happens to be the mayor um, about the concerns uh, that your previous guest is raising. So are we asking the police to do too much and should that money be allocated into other services, social services uh, that la- act as a liaison between the police and, and, and the person in distress? Look, to some extent, how we fund police is ultimately arbitrary, right? It's an insurance policy that we essentially take out as a public, um, uh, primarily for incidents where we want people with exceptional powers and sidearms who are exceptionally highly trained uh, to be able to intervene. But at the same time, it's, of course, arbitrary to say we should defund by 50%. Should it be 20%? Should it be 70%? Um, The chief of police uh, was instructed by the police services board to provide a report on 20% defunding. That report is public and it's available on the uh, Hamilton Police Services Board's uh, website and it lays out the quite um, serious implications uh, of a proposition of a 20% cut, let alone a a 50% cut. But again, it's a democracy and ultimately the people do get to decide. I would say that uh, the examples that the guest cites might not be particularly apt. Police aren't usually called when somebody, for instance, uh, is taking their meds. Police are called when people are not taking their meds. And uh, I don't know if uh, an unarmed social worker is the best person to send in into a situation uh, where somebody is acting in a highly unpredictable uh, manner. But certainly there's opportunity for cooperation. And I think the Hamilton Police Service has already showed uh, that they've gone some way towards trying to provide um, a, a, a more comprehensive service in terms of response to these very difficult situations so i've only got about 30 seconds left here christian unfortunately but where's the balance how do you find the balance here uh the balance means that citizens do have to get more involved in policing and i think that is the silver lining in this conversation that too long police have been left on their own with too much discretion too little uh, uh, transparency and too much power and that i'm glad to see that the public is getting more concerned and more involved i don't know if that means defunding but it certainly means that uh, police need to be more transparent more accountable and we need to make the governance mechanisms that we have in the police services board work better in this province Christian Laprac has been with us, professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University. Christian, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Been my pleasure. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're obviously seeing more and more restrictions. Toronto and Peel now moved into a gray or lockdown category. Uh, the rest of Southern Ontario, including us and the Hammer, uh, in the red zone, uh, pretty much from uh, Oshawa all the way through till Hamilton. So obviously, uh, this has uh, once again um, brought the uh, strong arm down on businesses, uh, specifically small businesses, and a lot in those areas are complaining that the big box stores get to open up. Uh, however, with uh, you know the smaller uh, mom and pop situations. Um, they're they're closed. So let's bring in Julie Kwasinski, CFIB Director, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Provincial Affairs for uh, Provincial Affairs for Ontario. Julie is with us now. Julie, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for the opportunity to share our members' views. And how are you doing? I'm doing well. You you hanging in there? Hanging in there, but I think you can tell CFIB we've had. Uh, some busy days, especially lately. So lately we've heard more information coming out from the federal government. Uh, is this of help? We understand the money's starting to flow. What can you tell us? Okay, here's the scoop on this. I think uh, I'd like to address your point earlier about the imbalance between small business and big box stores. It's kind of what we got here, Scott, is a bit of a David Goliath David versus Goliath situation. So right now, if you're an independent retailer, you can open but only for curbside and pickup, curbside pickup and and, yeah. and, and delivery. That's it. Whereas big box store, Walmart, Costco, I can walk in there and buy anything I want beyond essential goods. And that's what the issue is. I can buy food, pick up my prescription, but I can buy jeans and pots and pants. So why that's unfair is is very, very clear. Because the Walmarts and the Costcos of the world during this make-or-break holiday season will be raking in the sales, and meanwhile, the small business owner will be restricted to curbside pickup and delivery only. And for a lot of these items like clothing, Scott, you're going to want to go into a store and try it on. That's the issue there. And the other thing, too, e-commerce. Not all small businesses are on e-commerce. Not all small businesses are conducive. Their their business model doesn't allow them to do e-commerce. So we go back to the point. If you want to draw in the, the whole health issue here, because it's very, very important, we want to do our part as small businesses to help get the case numbers down on COVID-19. So I ask this very simple question. If it's dangerous to buy a book at an independent bookseller, which the government is saying it is, you can't go into that independent bookstore, why isn't it dangerous to do that at Costco or Walmart? I mean, there's another layer to this argument, too. And I think if you look at the situation, we have asked government for two things. Number one, we're not saying shut Costco down. If you want to keep them open, make them cordon off the non-essential section. So if it's not food or pharmacy, you can't buy it. And if you show up in the lineup with a pair of jeans, then we don't allow you to buy that pair of jeans. But meanwhile, the small business owner has to rely on curbside pickup and delivery only for their sales. And that just doesn't seem fair. 
So if the government doesn't want to go with the option of cordoning off sections, which is really, really easy in spite of what the Premier has said in news conferences, we're also advocating let the small businesses open with strict protocols, of course, health and safety protocols, and limit them to a maximum number of customers and employees. So go with option A or option B. Because we're heading into the make-or-break holiday season, Scott. And this is so unfair to put small businesses who are following the health and safety protocols, who are willing to even go further on health and safety, just so they can get even a few customers in the door. This is simply not fair. And we, we believe that the Premier should do the right thing and level the playing field. Uh, I think this is obviously something that is resonating with people. It's something they can identify with. There was the other example of the Hudson Bay store uh, in Toronto that said, I guess, because they were selling food products, that that is that that you know they find the loophole and there's there's how they skirt the bylaw. Uh, that being said, uh, it looks like Hudson Bay downtown in Toronto have closed that store. Uh, the bad publicity, uh, not worth uh, what they're going to sell. H- have you got any comment from anybody uh, thinking that this may change, uh, that uh, there may be some sort of uh, a balance here, uh, whether it is uh, roping off certain parts of the big box stores or, or just closing them down? Is there any, do you have any reason to indicate there's some movement here? Nothing yet. And we have reached out to the Premier's office. I'm trying to set up a call between our President Dan Kelly and Premier Ford. And we're waiting to hear back as to if and when that call will happen. But I think it's very, very important for the Premier to hear firsthand from our President, who has been taking a lot of emails, calls, what have you, from members who basically do not like the fact that it's just unfair. I mean, it's one thing to say everybody should be shut down, which that's not what we're advocating for. What we're saying is level the playing field. So we're not saying Walmart should necessarily be shut down, but make sure that what Walmart doesn't does isn't any more than what small businesses are allowed to do. And I go back to those two options, either cordon off the sections of that store so they only sell food and pharmaceuticals, or let them keep doing what they're doing right now, but let small businesses in retail open up to with a limited number of customers and staff. Because again, I mean, we've got a few weeks here to make or break for these small businesses. And a lot of them, Scott, they're going to decide at the end of this year whether or not they can survive. I mean, 15.9% of our members in Ontario have told us that they are actively considering bankruptcy. And that bankruptcy number is generally around the 1% mark. And 26% of them only are at regular sales for this time of year. So they really, really need, need the sales. And the government has come up, the government of Ontario, with a program to help businesses in the red and the gray zones. But here's the problem. It only covers energy bills and property tax bills. And Scott, any small business owner can tell you there's a heck of a lot more fixed costs telecoms costs, commercial insurance. What about topping up the federal rent program? What about lost stock? What about these restaurants like being told at the last minute you can't do this outdoor dining thing anymore in Toronto? What about all that food that they're going to have to throw out? 
because they're not going to be able to use all of that for takeout only, even though they're allowed to do takeout now. They should be really... No, but that's usually why that's usually why they allow them three days or so before they actually close them down, yeah. right, to get rid of anything that they'll have in the freezer. Um, so what do you think is going to happen here? Because at the end of the day, this is, you know, obviously it's a health concern. So do you think you're going to see them rope off areas within those big box stores that aren't essential? Or do you think they'll just shut the whole thing down? Um, personally, if I were a betting person, I think the more, and again, you'd have to ask government, and maybe someone will ask Premier Ford at 1 o'clock today, but if I were a betting person, I think they might go for the option B, where small business can open to, with a limited number of customers and a limited number of staff, because then they don't have to deal with the issues coming from uh, from Goliath, the WalMarts and the Costcos. But I like. Do you I think said, that's not going to have health officials screaming and they'll just say close the whole thing down? But but they're already open, so. They're already open. That's what my point is. So right now you can go to Walmart and Costco and buy anything you want. No sections are roped off. Yes. So what we're saying is if you allow a limited number of people in a store, in a small business, that we don't we don't see how that's going to contribute to covid when you're going to be probably looking at social distancing of not six feet, maybe 12 feet or 15 feet, everybody's going to have to wear a mask. And anyone who's been into a small business knows you walk in the door, they have, because they're small, they can really, really control what activities are going on. Unlike a larger store where there's large square footage, they can make you wash your hands at the door. They're a small store before you walk in. The mask policy can be really, really enforced more easily throughout the store. We don't believe, and plus the lineups, you're going to get more lineups in front of a Costco and a Walmart than in front of a small business store. This is a better thing for the COVID numbers, too. Uh, what are your thoughts about the restaurateur that uh, opened up in, in uh, I think it was Etobicoke this morning, and, and certainly talked about it, and I guess police were waiting and, and, and such to, to find the person. What are your thoughts on that? Great question, Scott. At CFIB, we don't condone breaking the rules. When, when we lobby government, we always lobby within the confines of whatever the current rules are. So we, we don't support or condone such activity. However, he's an independent businessman. It's a free country, yet he's got to realize that the, the fines, he may get thrown a fine. But we really believe that as much as we may or may not like the rules, you play by the rules and try to change them why those rules are still in force. Uh, do you think that the big box stores are taking advantage of the loophole, uh, which says, you know, just non-essential services? So obviously if you serve food, that, that changes the scenario, if you sell food, rather. Uh, do you think they're, they're finding a loophole here? Well, I wouldn't even call it a loophole. Because a loophole implies that you're trying to go behind the scenes to do something. It's very, very clear. The government has spelled out that if you have a full grocery component, Mm -hmm. you can pretty much sell anything else. So what that leads us to then ask is, we'd like to get from government a better description as to exactly what 
sensory component is. Because we're actually, you've opened up another can of worms here, Scott, I love it. We're actually getting members reaching out to us and asking, if I have bananas or chocolate chip cookies... Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So why not take an aisle and just put some food in it? We actually have had calls. If I have yeah. these chocolate chip cookies, can I open my, my store? So we need a better definition of full grocery component. But, I mean, frankly, it's not a loophole right now. They are doing this. They are allowed to do it. They did it before in the first round of shutdowns, and we told government then it was unfair. Julie, let me ask you. I mean, obviously, you know, we, we've talked to many different uh, avenues and angles of this story and how COVID-19 has shown weaknesses in, in many systems that we have. Is this just pointing to a greater problem of these big box stores and the harm that they have on independent business? Is, but it is a, of course, we. It, it, it's a free country. Yep. People are free to shop where they want to shop. But government is now imposing rules on shopping. So that's why we have to interfere and make sure that those rules create a level playing field. You're always going to have that big big box versus small business debate. And in a free country, people can choose to shop where they want to shop. But this, again, I go back to my earlier point. The point we're making here is, is that the government is making rules that are being imposed on everyone, and those rules are not fair. We are simply asking the government to level the playing field. That's all. It's a very simple ask. Level the playing field. We're not saying shut Costco down, shut Walmart down. We're saying if you're going to keep them open and let them sell stuff beyond food and prescriptions, then small businesses should be allowed to open beyond just curbside pickup and delivery. And we're even saying, we're saying, let us only have two or three customers in the store. We're okay with that. So we're actually putting our own suggestion of protocols in place because we want to contribute to getting the numbers down. We're putting this forward not only as a save the businesses in the holiday season, but also as a measure to help get the COVID numbers down. How much of a big box store is actually essential goods it would be groceries perhaps hardware yes but if you rope those areas off that's a very small percentage of the entire store is it not like i mean i would say most of the stuff is not non-essential is that accurate yeah again i don't represent walmart or costco but i think as a consumer going into one of those stores yeah i agree with you it would be very easy to rope off the essential services as opposed to roping off the rest of the store I mean, yeah. the point is... And then you have to ask yourself the question, is it worth keeping that giant building open for two or three aisles of essential goods? Yeah, but then, hey, that's not my problem. That's Walmart or Costco's problem. Yeah. What, why don't People could say the same thing about small business. Is it worth them, the little business, opening yeah. just to do curbside yeah. and delivery? It's the same argument on the other side, too. But I mean, Good I, point, you know, Julie. Cream, sorry? Good point. So here's hoping we get some traction for you on this, and uh, and hopefully there'll uh, be a meeting of the minds here and some sort of compromise comes out of this. Oh, I agree, Scott. And listen, we're not trying to be difficult here. We're advocating mm-hmm. for our members, and they've reached out to us, and they've said loudly and clearly, this is not fair. 
It's one thing to shut us down to curbside pickup and delivery only, but it's another thing to let Walmart and Costco once again, like you did in the first round of shutdowns, because that's what happened, have a leg over on us. Yeah. No, I think most would agree with that. Yep, Julie Kwasinski has been with us, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario. Julie, thanks for the time. Uh, Be well. Good luck with this. Thank you, Scott. Always a pleasure. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's uh, move away from COVID-19. Let's move away from the United States, kind of, uh, and talk about Canada's relationship with China. And uh, you may remember we've talked on this show at length about uh, the dwindling Canada-China relationship and uh, especially how we have been bullied by China. And, of course, the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Spaver, involved in all of this. And as a result of the uh, arrest of uh, the Huawei CFO, who, of course, was uh, uh, detained in Vancouver, uh, on a extradition warrant to the United States where uh, she faces charges. Well, today there is a free Meng event, which is being hosted by a group of left-wing organizations, including the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, the Canadian Peace Congress, and the Hamilton Coalition to Stop War. Speakers include NDP MP Nikki Ashton and Green MP Paul Manley. Uh, during any of this uh, publicity material, there's no mention of Michael Kovrig or Michael Spaver, the two Canadians that have been detained by Chinese uh, authorities uh, for now well over 700 days uh, after Ming was arrested in Vancouver. Let's bring in John Iveson, columnist for your National Post, the column today, Useful Idiots of the World Unite, and they have with the Free Ming event. John Iveson with us now. John, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, how are you doing? I'm not too bad. Uh, your thoughts on, um, it seems that uh, obviously that China has had a lot of influence in Canada uh, lately by the uh, Chinese Communist Party. We've heard of, of, of Chinese Canadians who are being harassed uh, by the United Front here and, uh, and, and, and I guess told to, to tow the CCP line uh, here in Canada. With what we're seeing with this uh, Free Meng event, uh, is this another example of the United Front? Is this another example of that infiltration into Canada? No, I think that, you know, in, in some cases there's been intimidation where people have been, Chinese Canadians have been threatened that their families back in China might be, you know, there might be some kind of uh, action taken against them. And I mean, in this case, it is seemingly left-wing Canadians have got, there's no leverage being exerted. And that's why I use the phrase useful idiots. I mean, that's what, how Stalin described the kind of confused and misguided American sympathizers who helped aid the Soviet agenda. And there doesn't appear to be any pressure being exerted on the, like Nikki Ashton, who's a, you know, you could, you could accuse some of these people of being naive. And maybe you could accuse her of being naive, but she shouldn't be. She's a, 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 been an MP for 12 years, and she ran for that party's leadership twice. And I can imagine there's a lot of New Democrats today looking at this and just shaking their heads and thinking, you know, this is tarnishing the whole party with this this sort of adolescent, delusional reputation. Um, how does this explain her ideology? I mean, and how do you justify this position with being a member of the NDP, or even well, the Greens for that matter? Trying to get into her mind, I guess, is, is hard for somebody like me, but I mean, I did ask her. I did... I, to interview her, but she didn't return call yesterday. But um, 
I did speak to a, a representative of one of the left-wing groups involved, and my conclusion was that they, that they will excuse any excess by any other country um, because they're so fixated on this reflexive loathing of the United States. So it's a kind of a case of what about? I mean, you you, you talk about what China is doing, and you know the, the the attitude seems to be yeah, but what about the U.S.? You know, this individual Eve Engler was telling me that uh, Canadians have got nothing to fear from China, but they should be very nervous about uh, America's national security agency. How do you draw that conclusion? Because basically what these people are saying is that they think we should be more aligned or allied with the Chinese Communist Party than we do a democracy, which is America, whether you like the current president or not. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of mystifying. I mean, you know, Nikki Astor has got some form in this, this area in that uh, last year she tweeted hands off Venezuela in support of the, the Maduro Maduro regime there, um, which, again, is inexplicable because that is a very odious regime. And how a, an elected member of parliament could be uh, could think this was a good thing, I have no idea. I mean, the reaction has been pretty stark today. Uh, there have been people from uh, her own writing saying, you know, our writing is no clean drinking water. She, she represents a, a very northerly writing in Manitoba, around uh, Churchill, Manitoba. This person says, our writing is no clean drinking water. Housing, suicide, homelessness and addiction are, are major problems. Our natural resources industry is barely hanging on. High child poverty, highest child poverty rates in the country. People are starving. And this MP is thinking this is a more deserving cause than our right. You know, and the cause, let's remember, is uh, a Chinese billionaire who is not detained like the two Canadians in China in a cell. She flits between two multi-million dollar mansions in Vancouver uh, and is essentially free to do what she wants, except leave. Um, yeah, it's kind of kind of staggering, to be honest. Are people questioning her ideology? Underlying socialism is communism? I mean, is that what people are asking? I mean, that's well, the I assumption. Think, I, I think that, um, you know, I mean, whether they, she identifies as communist, uh, she's getting pretty close to it. In fact, the Communist Party um, was retweeting this morning a, a, a criticism of me on Twitter uh, by some other fellow traveler. You know, this is, there, there is a... Um, a sense that communists have to stick together. And, uh, you know, I asked the individual who, I, who I'd, I was interviewing, Eve Engler, have you ever been to China? He'd never been to China. He has no, has no clue that, first of all, there are more capitalists in China than there are in, than, than in Canada, more people driving Audis, Porsches, and Mercedes. And secondly, the, the idea that, um, that uh, this group is also supporting Huawei being allowed to build out the 5G network. Um, and I was suggesting, well, Huawei is heavily involved in the surveillance society that has grown up in China. In fact, they've elevated surveillance to an art form. Is that not concerning to you? You know, particularly given what's happening in Hong Kong, where you'd think there might be some kind of uh, sympathy. All of this just was just noise. And, and the only thing that he could think about was the NSA and, and the Five Eyes Intelligence Network. 
When you bring this sort of questioning up, um, do you find that you get accusations of racism or even McCarthyism? You know, you're fear-mongering here. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. When, when really this isn't about race, it's about ideology. It's got nothing to do with race. Right, and, uh, you know, I mean, let's be clear. This is a very, the very furthest fringes of, of uh, the Canadian political spectrum, but it is worrying when, those people on the furthest fringes of this political spectrum are being supported by two MPs who are sitting in the House of Commons. And, um, you know, I mean, people are allowed to hold whatever views they want, but they should be called out in it when they go to these extremes. It seems we focus more on the alt-right when they step out than on the alt-left. I don't know about that. I don't want to get involved in a... a in any way where I'm uh, somehow defending the alt-right who are as odious to me as the alt-left. Alt-anything to me is is pretty odious. So I don't want to uh, say one is is worse than the other. But all I know is that this is beyond stupid, to be honest. How does, uh, how are these parties reacting? I mean, how should these parties, whether it's the NDP, are they green? How do they justify these MPs' presence? Well, it's a good question. I haven't actually asked the, the leader of the NDP how he feels at the moment, but, uh, um, and they've got a pretty, um, uh, most green and NDP MPs have got a pretty wide allowance on what they're allowed to say. Uh, they're not in government after all, but, um, but I would have thought that that more more mainstream NDP MPs who are trying to, you know, there's a rich tradition, particularly in your area, of working class, mm-hmm. uh, blue collar NDP supporters, union members, uh, who would look at this and go, this is not the party that I've supported all my life. Is there a shift in Canadian politics? Do you feel we're failing to ask these questions? And this, many are concerned that this is happening quietly. No, I think that that um, by and large the, the sort of centre is holding in Canada, which is good news for for all of us. I think um, you know you saw this weekend that Pierre Poilievre started talking about um, the Great Reset, which has been used by conspiracy theorists on the right to suggest that uh, there's a sort of agenda, elite agenda to confiscate property and uh, essentially take over the world. I mean, it's the same yeah. type of Illuminati, Freemason conspiracy that's been around forever. But in this case, it's the uh, World Economic Forum and its fellow travelers, including Trudeau and, and so on. Um, and Poiliev knew exactly what he was appealing to when he used the words the Great Reset and tried to pin it on the, the Liberal government. And it's rebounded on him. I mean, I think that um, Aaron O'Toole, the Conservative leader, has got a, 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 a good strategy of trying to broaden the appeal of the Conservative Party. He's trying to appeal to union members and other people. Um, Poiliev apparently is trying to broaden the appeal of the Conservative Party by appealing to the lunatic fringe on the right. Um, hmm. And he got called out for it. And I think that yeah. what, the same way that Nikki Ashton is being called out for appealing to the lunatic fringe on the left, you know, the equivalent is happening to, to Poiliev. So I think that's a good thing. And, and as, as long as uh, we don't tolerate these kinds of beha- behavior, behavior in the mainstream, i.e. our elected MPs, 
and they're called out for when for for dog whistle politics like they, like they're engaging it, then that's a good thing. And I think that we by doing so we avoid what we've just seen the movie that just unfolded in the U.S. You said something interesting uh, earlier on. You said the center is holding. Before COVID-19, we saw a very divisive world. Either you're way over there, you're way over there. And I commend you for for not getting sucked into the alt-left, alt-right question. Uh, that, profu- that proves you're the professional that everyone thinks you are. But you said something, the center is holding. Um, how confident are you of that when we see such a divisive world, when we see such extreme politics? And does COVID-19 play a role? here well where we've realized you know this is just a lot of a, a lot of nonsense and we have to concentrate on what's important and in 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 what we have to do to, to to help the country survive um is the center holding i think it is by and large i mean you know i mean social media has not helped i mean it's it's the algorithm is designed to to attract controversy you know you say something controversial and it's halfway around the world before the, the truth has got its boots on. Um, that has created a whole different type of political debate. But I think, by and large, uh, our politics is still within certain accepted parameters. And long may that continue. And I think, you know, having seen what has unfolded in the U.S., I mean, nobody wants that. I'm sure even the the extremes at either end do not want that. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty confident that Canadian politics is is fairly robust, that our institutions are robust, and that um, we are not going to go down the road of this kind of uh, populist anarchy. Uh, it's not to say that things are going to stay the same, but, um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, that, the centre is holding this comes from the WBH's poem, The Second Coming. He talked about mere anarchy being loosed upon the world. Well, I think that um, the centre will hold and that anarchy will not be loosed upon Canada. Mm. What will this recovery look like? Many, when this uh, pandemic first started, thought, you know, I can't wait for this to get back to normal. Then we soon realized, I don't think there's going to be a normal. It's going to be a new normal, something different, uh, a hybrid normal, if you will, coming out the other end. Uh, what will this recovery look like? Does it need a giant reset? Is this about changing, uh, you know, uh, or resetting the world? Uh, or is it is it about getting out of a pandemic? Is this the time for all of this or is it a perfect time well i don't think it's going to be the same world that we left but i mean at the same time pandemics have a have a start a middle and an end and we're in the middle of it right now and there will be an end to it you know subsequent to that um the economy is going to look quite different there's going to be fewer restaurants fewer small stores i mean that's that seems to be unavoidable right now this second wave is just killing small businesses and you've got to feel for them um you know no amount of government support is going to keep a lot of these things open the huge levels of government support means it's going to be a very different type of type of government we're going to be heavily indebted uh, at some point you know probably taxes have to go up i think it will be a, a different world but but not an unrecognizable world i mean i think that uh that you know we're we're infinitely adaptable and, and sooner or later this thing will come to an end and we'll, we'll go back to traveling. We'll go back to eating out. We'll go back to doing all the things that we did before. But uh, but it will take a long time before 
we forget this. You know, it took ten years really to get over the the last crisis, the uh, the debt crisis, and and this is infinitely worse than that. We remember uh, when uh, the Prime Minister prorogued government and was uh, this was between the first and second wave when we had a little bit of a lull there. And the thought was we were going to come out of that with some sort of an election. The throne speech was going to be a new vision for Canada. As we started to get into the second wave, they pulled back on all of this and just continued on with what they with what they were doing. Uh, that being said, um, uh, a new climate policy coming out uh, last week week uh is that the road back is is that where we should put our eggs or is it a balanced approach there because it appears that this is the time since we've shut down the oil industry that this is the time to come back green well i think inevitably there's going to be more there was always going to be more green i mean the the thing last week was was essentially a target uh it didn't actually say how we're going to get to the target um a lot of the things that the government is you know Making a big deal about where was it was always in it was always going to happen. You know, a new clean fuel standard, for example. Um, these targets were were always going to happen beyond 2030. So, you know, I don't think it has been quite as comprehensive as the, the government would wish, and that's partly because, you know, th- frankly, they're they're more focused on the second wave. They're more focused on their own electoral survival. They're more focused on the finances, I mean, we're going to get an economic statement next week. It's not going to be a pretty statement. I mean, the economy mm-hmm. is, no matter how rosy a picture the government paints it, is in uh, a more unstable position than it's been since the 1930s. So there are a host of problems there, and not, there is not a huge amount of money to throw around on new initiatives. Hence, I think that's why the speech from the throne was less ambitious than had been intended, perhaps, in the summer. Um you know, this government, which was st- probably still is looking quite good in the polls, may not look so good in the middle of the spring because um, people are getting fed up and they're starting to turn against their governments. You can you can see that right yeah. across the country. Yeah, people are becoming uh, fatigued. Becoming fatigued and, and governments that won easy re-election, incumbent governments in British Columbia and New Brunswick and so on, I don't think that it would be that easy for an incumbent government to win in the spring. Getting back to the situation with China and the Free Meng event uh, that is happening today, what about government reaction to this? Obviously, we've seen government reaction in the last few weeks uh, turn up the heat on China, harden a little bit to the point where we're getting response from that. Is our position on this changing? Is this sort of thing now gaining a different interest? Well, I think it is. I mean, there's a new poll out today from the Asia Pacific Foundation that shows that people are souring even further on China. The Conservative Party's position has hardened with the election of Erno O'Toole. Trudeau has set, or, or Champagne, the foreign minister, had set in train a, a review process. Um, I think Trudeau has to move, but apparently the, pro- the suggestions that Global Affairs put forward were rejected by other departments, and they've had to go back to the drawing board. I think the, the Liberal government's in a bit of disarray about this, and... You know, we will see. I think they've got they've got to come up with a policy on China that is harder to be in uh, to be somewhere where the closer to where the public opinion is. But there are concerns in government about what the effect on inward investment, about the effect on the release of the two Michaels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's uh, it's not clear where this government stands on China yet, and may not be for some time.
John Iveson has been with us. His column in the National Post, Useful Idiots of the World Unite, and they have with the Free Meng event, and it is in your National Post. John, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. All the best. Bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.